Welcome, adventurers. Esmeray, known as a child as Ergul Abbas, and after a horrible transformation as the Emerald Scarab, yearns for one thing. An item she saw once as a child in a temple beneath a hill. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents Tales from the Dungeon Valerian stretched his arms above his head. His back ached. He had been reading since. He looked at a series of taper candles, now turned to various puddles of wax on the table where he sat. Roselia's mercy. He had been reading much too long. He should get back to the apartment. It wasn't that Orteval, and certainly not Stare, would care about his absence, but that Orteval would come looking for him at some point and though he was unlikely to say anything, he would be irritated. The young wizard pushed the scattered stack of books and papers before him into some semblance of a pile. The last thing he moved was a worn sheaf of papers in a rough leather folder. Alarion picked it up, flipping to the first yellowed parchment contained within. In a neat hand on an otherwise blank sheet, was written, an account of Pergot Bokloff, known as the Defiler, a summation of the limited knowledge, stories, and tales of his rise and fall. He thumbed through the papers. There weren't that many. It wouldn't take too long. With no real thought, Alarion sat back down, flipping to the first page, and began to read. Little is known about the origins of Pergat Bakloff, either because he is in fact the product of folk tales and legends, and as such there is no before to know, or, as is so often the case with such figures, questions about who they were and how they came to such choices were not asked until he had risen to infamy, when, by such time, there is within the record and oral tradition three pieces of exaggerated or completely made-up information for every fact that may be uncovered. It is my goal to recount only those tellings that seem based on reason. As to his beginning, some stories have forgot arriving from the East. Other accounts speak of him being born and raised in Jamato under a different name only changing his name to that by which he is now known in his late thirties, thus explaining why there are no tales of his existence or exploits within the province before then. The last of the three most accepted beliefs is that he arrived from the north through Thorn. Though this is the least popular belief amongst scholars, to me it seems the most likely. There is a single written account by a wood elf bearing the name of Gabrine Nair Bengareth, 
of a lone human male seeking refuge in Yewood home in early 11.30 a.l. Gabrine was an innkeeper who kept notes on interesting persons as inspirations for stories and poems. Though no name was recorded, a fairly detailed description was, one which closely matches that of Pragat Bakloff, including his most noted feature over time, Eyes of All Black. It is to be noted that this did not refer to the entirety of his eye, just that his irises were nearly as dark as his pupils. In tales and poems that have persisted to this day, phrases like his coal-black stare and his inky gaze are commonplace. Gabrine noted the man's behavior as falsely warm and overly curious about whom among the elves of the Shiverwood he might talk to or gain tutelage from in regards to their connections to nature, particularly as they pertain to their use of magic. Where other scholars argue the lack of name and the fact that the wood elves find most humans odd in one way or another made this singular account of no value, I find the timing of the arrival and the close physical description too much to be called coincidence. With no further regard or suppositions as to his beginnings, it is not long after this account that more credible stories of Pergat's existence and influence begin. In early 1131 A.L., it is noted that he took up a position teaching the biology of life and magic at an institute in Borgen. Given Pergat's eventual end, no institution acknowledges having employed him as part of their official record at this time. But such specific knowledge bears no real value in the telling of his tale. More important was the subject which Pergat Bakloff was teaching. His studies focused on the specific connection between magic and life force. Pergat's main theory was that all life, all magic, were interconnected. He posited that life and magic existed in an intricate and interwoven manner. Life borrowing from magic, magic borrowing from life. This attempt at a deeper understanding of magic and its specific source was hailed as revolutionary at the time. Pergat attracted the brightest students and was sought out by other well-known and influential names of arcane study at the time. What credible writings survive from that period indicate the feeling that Pergat was reaching for something beyond what could be imagined, that he, his supporters, and students were on a path that would lead them to the very source of magic, possibly the very reason for life. One unsourced writing at the time said, Should the visionary Pergat Bakluf untie this knot that binds all things, who knows what heights we may reach? With such knowledge, what would separate us from the gods? This quote is now used frequently as a warning against unchecked study, as reasoning for detailed thought exercises about all possible ramifications and outcomes of any given path of study. But the quote was a celebration at the time, not a question of self-reflection caution. His work started as in-depth questions, detailed studies, and small-scale experiments. The work was considered largely theoretical. 
In late 1133 A.L., Pragat Bakloff began making regular visits to the Gimlin Woods. The forest was massive and filled with all manner of life. What better place to study the connection between life and magic than in the green heart of the province? Pragat was quoted as saying. In late 1133 and early 1134 A.L., rumors began to swirl that Pergat was nearing a breakthrough in his studies. That proof of a specific method that would demonstrate the connection between life and magic was less than a year away. It is at this point that the first vocal critics of Pergat's studies begin to surface in the record. A few favored students that had been with him since his early research were beginning to question the true end goal of Pergat's studies. Accounts of experiments that withered plants, that rapidly aged mice and rabbits, came to the forefront. Many had assumed these were just accidental results associated with a new field of study. But as time passed, Pergat seemed to be seeking out how to expand experiments of this nature, not learn from and avoid such results. When challenged on this front, Pergat had kept all who followed him in the dark, saying he couldn't share why these experiments were important just yet, but that the end result would be worth the sacrifice. He began to ask those who followed him, those who believed in and supported him, for blind faith. And while the tenets of faith may require trust in the unseen, in academic circles the prolonged withholding of method, reason, or result soon drew suspicion and criticism. Over these years, Pergat Bakloff had established a small compound in the Gimlin woods proper, so that he might stay comfortably there for extended periods of time during field studies. Given the early excitement in his work, there had been no shortage of funding for this endeavor, and the little campus had been open to all. His students, and sometimes Pergat himself, would welcome learned visitors and any number of interested parties to show them about, sharing updates on the ongoing work. But as the years went on and the work progressed, visitors were met more regularly with cold indifference. They were made to understand they were interfering with critical work, and their presence was a distraction from progress. It is here that an account which has been retold with many varying details, but a strangely precise date, the 23rd day of Pyram and the year 1134 A.L., came to pass. Why this date has never been questioned, or how it became so universally agreed upon, is a matter of more debate than the date itself. Whatever the specific details, it was this event that began the downfall of Pergat's acceptance as a legitimate scholar, and the beginning of a dark legend filled with destruction and death. The event was an experiment conducted at the Gimlin Wood compound. The animal involved has been listed from anything as small as a dog to as large as a horse, with a deer, a wolf, and a pig being the other prevalent animals mentioned as the subject in various retellings. Also uncertain was the number of participants and witnesses reported to have been present. 
some telling say the event was publicly announced and witnessed by several hundred bystanders, while others say it was a closed affair in which one lone eyewitness who did not belong to Pergat's inner circle snuck in, recorded the happening, and heroically escaped, bringing news of the deeds done there to the wider world. The animal, whichever you prefer to envision, was said to be set amidst a meticulously constructed circle of stone and pacified with some concoction of herbs. Pergat and a number of his faithful students, the numbers mentioned here also vary between four and twelve, but when Pergat was added, the resulting number always being odd, surrounded the beast, standing just outside of the circle, and began a ritual of some sort. The tellings of how the ritual was conducted and what was involved are far too many to list here, and again hold little bearing upon the outcome which is generally agreed upon in all tellings. The only material element that seems worthy of note, one called for in a full two-thirds of all recorded tales, was a roughly hewn crystal, greenish in color and the size of a large fist. This was placed between the beast and Pergat's position. In all tellings, when the ritual had reached its conclusion, a visible bolt of energy stretched from the animal of note through the crystal and out to Pergat Baklov. In every telling, the animal was struck dead, whether in some gruesome manner or simply by falling to the ground. The next detail is where disagreement in available writings, even shortly after the event, begin. It was said that when the ritual was completed, Pergat appeared younger. Two years, five years, ten. Many answers here as well, but always younger. This result was immediately disputed as impossible. Suppositions that Pergat had just found a root to dye his hair with, which had begun to show signs of gray, were among the simplest explanations. Others proclaimed the whole experiment had just been an elaborate ruse to hide the fact that all of his studies were false, to stop him from being exposed as a charlatan. Whether the outcome was believed or not, it is here his standing in the academic community was ruined. Some condemned his cruel use of animals. Some accused him of trying to discover the roots of vampirism while others said the experiment exposed his so-called work as nothing more than primitive sacrifice and backwoods superstition. It is said that Pergat Bakloff was dismissed from any official position of authority, the majority of his funding lost, and with the exception of a handful of devout believers, he was no longer sought out as colleague or teacher. Due to his fall from grace and what eventually became of him, the record becomes particularly lacking in the years following this event. It is here that Pergat Bakloff the human leaves the record, and the legends of Pergat Bakloff the defiler begin. A few tales have attempted to reconstruct or guess at his movements after his disgrace. Some say he stayed at the compound in the Gimlin woods while him and his few remaining followers continued his work. Local stories attributed to loggers at the time tell of increased incidences of dead foliage, entire areas of the woods going inexplicably dead, even the soil there being devoid of, 
and incapable of supporting life. These accounts being of interest given Pragat's eventual proclivities. There are also a few stories recounting a visit to the compound from a student who was in search of justification, of explanation of what they had done, but the student found nothing but ruined buildings and skeletal remains, many of them humanoid. Sometime in early 1135 AL, stories of the beautiful stranger begin to appear. A young man, tall and strong, with straight white teeth, long flowing brown hair, and eyes that sparkled like black garnet. Always he wore a robe of brilliant blue and carried with him a wood staff, atop which a massive green gemstone sat, some tellings calling it as large as the size of two large fists held together. The stone allegedly shone from within, giving off its own light. The stranger in these stories would perform miracles, healing those near death or afflicted with sickness, but always at a cost, both in monies and in sacrifice. Animals, crops, and favored fruit trees withered and died as price for the miracle performed. It is now generally accepted that stories of the beautiful stranger are just early tellings of Pergat Bakloff the Defiler, be he man or myth. In 1136 A.L., an entire section of the Gimlin Woods, east of the Fenfergal and north of modern-day Feld's Crossing, was destroyed overnight. Hundreds of acres. It is here the name of Pergat Bakloff, the Defiler, was born. A man matching the same description of the beautiful stranger came forth, claiming responsibility for the death of the woods, and threatened much worse, the destruction of livestock and crops, if he was not given sole dominion over the Gimlin woods, that he be brought tithes of goods, gold, and servants twice yearly to do with as he saw fit. No magic user before that time had ever reached a level of power to do what Pergat had said, and his initial claims were not believed. It is after this event that the record grows muddled. That being said, the record is clear on one thing. A famine took the province. A famine that seemed to defy logic. All writings on the subject make clear note of the fact that there were no extraordinary circumstances during this time. No drought, no excessive heat, no blight, and no swarming insects. Crops withered on the vine. Large swaths of land went fallow, as if the earth itself was devoid of life. The patchwork record from the time becomes overfull of the appearance of many different creatures organizations, and beings. One of particular interest to me is a group of druids, one which I believe would become to be known as the Cries Dionander. Largely believed to be myth as I write this account, to me they hold the odd distinction of being the only logical response to a creature, man or otherwise, that threatened the Gimlin woods. Given the size of the woods, it only follows that there would be those that lived within, separate from greater society, in harmony 
with the woods. It then is no uncomfortable leap of logic to assume these would be the first to defend the woods, their very home. The record becomes so filled with local tales and legends that picking out any thread of truth becomes perilous at best. Some stories speak of armies mobilizing from Jamato and Borgen, marching on the Gimlin woods. There are tales of great battles taking place there between the forces of the province and dark creatures, corrupted products of the woods themselves. Some tales include mention of Pergat, others do not. Some call it the war between woods and world. Again, I find it interesting here that green beings or green people of the woods are often mentioned as the only allies of the forces of the Barata province, beings that could change shape into woodland beasts and call unblighted nature to their aid. These allies are cited in two sources, Garmin's compendium of lore of the Gimlin woods in particular, as being the only reason the woods survived. And all the writings whether storied tale or the most scholarly reports on life during the time, the Gimlin woods were said to have been nearly decimated, a few maps showing them being only a tenth of their current size, dwindled to an area just surrounding Lake Cumbershall. Many scholars have a problem with these accounts, as ruin on that scale cannot, outside of extraordinary means, magical or otherwise, have been reversed in the time between these events and modern day. Observations and calculations would seem to imply the woods would only be half their current size if such tales of destruction were true. Whether exaggerated or not, one name dominates legends of the time. Pergat Bakloff, the Defiler. He was said to wield terrible magic, magic that was drawn from the very essence of life around him. Accounts of entire units of soldiers falling prey to blighted vines and withering rays are told. That these units fell to one being, one man, forgot Bakloff. These battles always left large areas of death, and not just amongst those who had fought, but every living thing in the area sometimes for a mile or more surrounding the battle. In many of these instances, there is mention of Pergat's possession or use of a massive green gem to draw the life from the surrounding woods before unleashing waste. The record is filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of tales of Pergat Bakloff and his destruction. These battles and confrontations, real or imagined, take place until the spring of 1138 A.L., where Pergat's place in history mysteriously ends. Strangely, there are no tales attributed to a specific battle or confrontation that ended Pergat Bakloff. It is like a most hated and feared figure was just erased from history. This is used as the most prevalent evidence by most scholars that Pergat Bakloff was not real, or that a majority of the deeds attributed to him after his fall from grace were made up, his name a convenient specter to haunt history. 
the stories, nothing more than folktales, that sprung up during especially challenging times of famine. Some say Pergot was an allegory for the famine itself, a personification of the death and destruction wrought by the tragic loss of life during the time. Whatever he was, there are far too many tales and far too verifiable facts to conclude anything with any degree of confidence. I will, most unprofessionally, take a moment here to put forth a theory I have chosen to believe. Whether through coincidence or unrecorded truth, it is in a similar time frame to Pergat's disappearance from the record that many tales of the Cries de Anandere begin. Reclusive woodland beings, or simple druids, they were said to dwell within the Gimlin woods. Many tales tell of them living underground, within the very soil of the Gimlin woods itself. The name Cries de Anandere translated means heart's protector. There is a children's rhyme from one particular region of the Gimlin woods that goes, Green people within the woods, beneath the ground a living, Glowing heart, green and good, to their lives have given. The forest has its chosen few, fates bound together, To keep all life fresh and new, never may they wither. Could it be that the gem said to accompany Pergat Bakloff, the defiler, in so many of the stories, was the result of his controversial work? A more sophisticated version of the green crystal described in the experiment that led to his scholarly demise. And if this is so, if this was the source of his terrible power, is it possible that the Cries de Anandere, whoever they may be, found the means to take it from him, ending his destructive rise to power. Is it possible that they took this gem and kept it, protected it? That the heart's protector did not, do not, protect a metaphorical heart, but an actual artifact with the power to drain the life of the forest. A lot to put on a children's rhyme but it rings true in my mind. There was a water spot at the bottom of the last page. It smudged out what was written there, ruined what Alarion presumed to be the date and name of the person who had written the above text. With no name or date, little weight would ever be given to these writings. The heart. Not a myth, not a legend, but a powerful artifact with the ability to turn life into magical power. An item which would make the emerald scarab nearly unstoppable. Stay tuned next week as the end of our tale continues to unfold. Mm -hmm.